Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for June 4th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Last week, the California Supreme Court heard argument in Kim versus Toyota Motor Company. It's a case re-examining the distinction between negligence and strict liability design defect actions, particularly how such differences bear on what sort of evidence is admissible in strict liability suits, like the plaintiffs here. His claim that a 2005 Toyota Tundra pickup truck was defectively designed by dint of the automaker's failure to include in its standard Tundra model a stabilization safety feature that may have prevented an accident that left the plaintiff William J. Kim paralyzed, of particular interest here to the Supreme Court and indeed to any attorney who brings or defends strict liability design defect suits is whether evidence of industry custom ought to be admissible to help determine Toyota's liability. Here, such evidence took the form of testimony that no other automaker included the aforementioned stability controls as standard equipment in competing pickup trucks. Eventually, a jury found for Toyota, and that judgment was affirmed by the 2nd Appellate District in 2016. That appellate panel noted that its affirmance parted ways with a line of California case law holding that industry custom evidence is always inadmissible in strict liability actions. The High Court now steps in to resolve this muddled evidentiary question, but before the High Court has its say, we've invited two amicus to voice their views on the question and about last Tuesday's oral argument. First, Brian Chase, senior partner with Biznar Chase, who penned a brief supporting the plaintiff's view that industry custom evidence ought always to be excluded in strict liability design defect cases because, among many other reasons he'll presently get to, such cases should focus on the harm-causing product at issue and not the behaviors and standards of other actors, and also because an industry custom defense could potentially shield unsafe designs so long as they're not atypical in an industry. Then Fred Heastan will join us. He's general counsel of the Civil Justice Association of California. In his view, the middle way carved out by the appellate court where the industry custom evidence is admissible for certain purposes, like, for instance, showing the infeasibility of design alternatives, is the proper route forward. Before hearing from our guests, though, let me first remind you of a couple of housekeeping notes. Don't forget that, as of a few weeks ago, our program can be found and listened to on iTunes and the podcast app on iOS devices. And as always, don't forget that listeners of the podcast can receive California CLE credit. It's funny short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further preamble, then, I welcome in Brian Chase, senior partner with Biznard Chase. Mr. Chase, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, well, thank you, Brian. It's my pleasure uh, for being on your show, and thank you for having me. You uh, wrote a, an amicus brief supporting the plaintiffs and appellates in the, in the case argued last week before the California Supreme Court, Kim versus Toyota Motor Company, just briefly before diving in to the arguments in this case over whether or not or when and how uh, industry custom evidence could be introduced into strict liability design defect cases. Um, you could lay out a couple of the facts in, in the procedures so folks have context. So here, as the, the caption might suggest, there was a auto accident, car accident, a truck um, was a driver of a truck needed to skid and avoid oncoming traffic, I think ended up in the shoulder and then skidded out of control and off the uh, into an embankment, suffered some severe injuries. And so claim, I believe, was that there could have been a particular safety feature, some electronic stability control included that's in correct. that person's truck. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's correct. Okay. And I think that feature was included in some of Toyota's trucks, but not not standard, right? That's correct. Okay, then, then diving into at trial, I believe some evidence is introduced showing that not only not Toyota, but but no one else, I think, uh, in the industry had used that particular feature in its standard automobiles. Is, is that roughly right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, and and so then the question is sort of whether that consideration can be brought in, can be considered by the fact finder. In, in this case, the, the trial court, and I think the Court of Appeals as well, said that that was okay for that sort of evidence to be considered um, in this sort of strict liability case, right? That, yeah, no, that's exactly what the trial court did. Right. Obviously something I vehemently disagree with, which we'll get to shortly, I assume. <laughs> sure, yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, good good introduction then. In, in your brief, you say that you know, evidence of industry custom really shouldn't be considered if you're talking about a strict liability case as opposed to a negligence action. So briefly, we could sort of start where your brief does 
um, where the doctrine sort of splits in the 1960s when California develops the strict liability doctrine. Um, tell me a bit about you know why it's formed, you know, and, and how the the purpose of the doctrine sort of influences this question, the source of evidence that goes in. Yeah, you know, so going back to you know Barker versus Law is when our Supreme Court. Um, and deciding what the strict liability law was going to be in the state of California, rejected the restatement of torts. Um, and um, many states follow the restatement of torts, and that's where it gets kind of confusing. But the Barker court rejected it, and I think rightfully so, uh, because they realized we're not talking about negligence here. If we're talking about negligence, we're talking about reasonableness of the conduct of a manufacturer or another person or whatever. In strict liability, you're focusing on the product. You're not focusing on what other people do. Um, so the Barker Court, recognizing the restatement of torts, sort of sounds and smacks of a negligence theory, rejected the restatement of torts, and I'll touch on that in a minute, and came up with a two-prong way of proving strict liability in California. And one is the risk-benefit test, and the other is the consumer expectation test. The problem with the restatement of torts is... When it talks about strict liability, it talks about is the product unreasonably dangerous. And so as soon as you throw in the word unreasonably or reasonableness, now you're getting into negligence concepts, and it gets really confusing. And I tried these cases all over the country, and when I'm in different states and I have to deal with the restatement of torts, oftentimes this evidence comes in, and the reason it comes in is because the defense is arguing, look, we have to decide whether or not the product or the jury does rather is the product unreasonably dangerous. In order to find out whether or not it is unreasonably dangerous, we therefore need to look at industry customs and practice to find out what's reasonable. Now, that's just complete negligence. And so I think our Supreme Court back when Barker was decided was correct and got away from the negligence aspect because you can sue somebody for negligence products liability. And if you do, you can get into all those things. But, you know, for a pure strict, strict liability, from a pure strict liability standpoint, our court was right uh, by rejecting the restatement of torts for those reasons, if, if that was clear. Yeah, of course. Um, could, could we just briefly unpack uh, a little bit further that, that Barker test? So you say, you know, the, the second part particular, I think, is the answer to the risk-benefit test roughly weighing whether the risk to a particular consumer weighs the sort of benefit, I think, to, to both parties, the manufacturer and consumers generally or the consumer. But it, within those, there's a few different considerations, including, you know, how likely it is that a particular design might cause harm, how great that harm could be, uh, you know, what the cost would be of avoiding it. Those do, as I think you said, kind of smack of negligence sound, kind of like the learned hand uh, theory a bit, right? Well, um, those risk benefit factors don't, I don't believe, because, you know, the likelihood of it happening Okay, so we can talk about uh, w when you're considering what the risks are, you know, the gravity of the harm. That's not a negligence uh, theory. That's not anything to do with other than what is the, in considering the risks of a design, what is the gravity of the harm? Well, the gravity in, in an auto defect case is typically catastrophic injury or death. So the gravity of harm is huge. Um, when it comes to the likelihood of the harm, again, that's not a negligence theory. It doesn't matter what other manufacturers do. The issue is how likely is it to happen? And then oftentimes you'll look at things like, well, you know, statistically this amount of rollovers happen. When these rollovers happen, these types of injuries can occur. And then you'll talk about how likely um, it is or depending on whatever the safety device is. So I don't think those factors in the Casey instruction to help a jury figure out what the risks are along with comparing them to the associated benefits smacks of negligence at all. Now, as you described them, there are sort of two lines of cases going back a few decades in the California courts, one uh, emphasizing the theory that you put forth, that there is a bright line rule keeping out industry custom type evidence in cases like this of strict liability. And I think another line of cases, uh, the Howard line of cases, suggesting perhaps something different, that it might be okay. Can you describe to me those competing lines of cases? Yeah. And the court just got that wrong. You know, when they talk about a competing line of cases, you know, it's 99% of all the cases are supporting what I'm saying, and you have the Howard case. So there's really not, you know, the, the court's opinion makes it seem like there's a competing point of view or competing cases, plural. There, you know, there's really not competing cases. But, I, you know, I can address that, and I'll, I'll point out why, in my opinion, I think the court got this wrong. <clears throat> if you go all the way back to, um, you know, the Barker v. Lowell case, 
you know, Barker Court said that, or, or the Grimshaw case, citing to Barker, quoting Barker, the jury's focus is properly directed to the condition of the product itself, not the reasonableness of the manufacturer's conduct. That's from Barker. So Barker is clearly rejecting the restatement, and we're talking about the product itself. If it's a, in this case, it's a Toyota. So this particular Toyota, not all Toyotas, we're just focusing on this Toyota. Um, you know, moreover, you go to the Buell Wilson case, you know, and it says, and I'll quote, a manufacturer cannot defend a product liability action with evidence it met the industry's customs of standards on safety. Such evidence is irrelevant and inadmissible. In fact, admission of such evidence is reversible error. So the case law is very clear in a strict product liability case, not, not a negligent product liability case. You can't bring in those things because they have they take your focus away from the condition of the product itself and are having you compare the product itself with comparable other products. And now you're getting into negligence theories. And, and, and I, you know, I can go on and on about the, those cases, but that in a nutshell is what they say. Going to the Howard and I'm, you know, not line of cases. The Howard case. The problem with that is, and you'll, and I think you know, you'll, you'll see why this is completely not on all fours, not even on one leg with regard to what we're talking about here. In the Howard case, first of all, it's a motion for summary judgment case. Okay, it's not a, it's not a trial court case or anything else. Secondly, in that case, there were negligence claims asserted. No one, or at least myself anyway, will ever argue if you have your negligence cause of action in your case. I would not argue these things can't come in. Of course they can, which is why on the first day of trial, I dismiss all my negligence claims. So in Howard, they had negligence claims. More importantly, in my opinion, is the plaintiff in that case introduced industry standards to show noncompliance and argue the defendant was negligent and strictly liable. So there, in Howard, you have the plaintiff suing under a negligence theory his expert or her expert bringing in industry customs and standards, and then the defense bringing them in as well. So the way I view the Howard case is, is the Howard plaintiff wasn't objecting to it. They were trying to use it proactively. So um, I just think it's, it's, it's not even a proper case, and you just have to have a – you know, it it's, can be confusing stuff. You know, I've argued this motion and never lost it in any state court trial, excluding this evidence. But sometimes – you know, we'll argue for a few days because it can get complicated. And, you know, and both sides can really muddy it up, which may happen on the second part of your show when I talk to the, uh, the competing view. But in Howard, and I don't understand how Howard says this, and then people say Howard says what they think it says in this Kim case. Howard, citing to the Buell Wilson case, says, in strict liability actions, the issue is not whether the defendant exercised reasonable care but in negligence actions, it is. Because in the Howard case, there was negligence causes of action in it. And so that's why it came in in Howard. So in my you know, humble view, it is not remotely a competing case. Um, we have an appellate court, or, well, a trial court and an appellate court arguing now that it's a competing case. But I just, I, I don't see it. This is a bit uh, by the by, but uh, sort of jumping off that Howard case, um, you know the the way the parties are aligned here. The defense does not want, or they, the defense would like the industry custom evidence to come in here to, to show that other automobile manufacturers do not include this feature. But couldn't it, you know, so and so the the, the case sort of has the the tenor of one decision one the decision going one way being defendant friendly or you know vice versa. But couldn't it work out as well for you know plaintiffs generally if you say well hey. The, the majority of the folks in the industry are doing it this way and you're not. And so that makes the strict liability case easier. You know, is this the sort of doctrine that could you know, cut both ways? Absolutely. Um, but more often than not, it doesn't cut uh, in favor of a plaintiff, in my view, because as soon as you get into industry customs and standards and the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards, you know, they are lobbied for governmental standards. They're lobbied for by the auto industry. They're very watered down standards. Um, and we have seen since the 1970s some of these standards being strengthened. And so what I have found, at least in my 25 years of, of specializing in auto defect cases, is the auto industry will make the cars as minimally safe as possible, you know, to maximize their profits, but they're complying with these watered-down standards. So everybody's kind of doing the same thing. So it's rarely the case where a plaintiff can go into court and say, 
everybody's doing it except this defendant because usually the defendants are all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem. But intellectually, what you're saying would work, you know, if that scenario ever arose. But I've not not seen it that I can think of. It probably has somewhere. Okay, that that relates to the other seemingly maybe most salient concern raised by folks on your side side of this case that allowing industry custom could sort of cement a particularly perhaps watered down standard of safety that everyone would just sort of you know wink and adhere to, knowing that they are safe from strict liability suit, even if that standard is not as safe as it could be. It is the custom, and so thereby it's uh, you know unassailable defense. How how real of a concern is that? Well, you know, it, it's a very real concern, and that's why I'm, I'm so pleased to, you know, have our Barker case and focus on the product itself. Because the minute you start allowing in these customs and standards, you are now trying a negligence case. And if you want to try a negligence case, that's fine. If you want to say this manufacturer designed this vehicle in an unreasonable manner compared to other reasonable manufacturers, then that's your choice. But strict liability takes us away from that. So you can't have the defense, hey, everybody else is doing it. The Barker court was very clear. The issue is, is this vehicle defective? If it's a roof, a seatbelt buckle, lack of a safety device, you are focusing on this one particular car. No car is the same. No SUV is the same. And that's the beauty of strict liability in California. The jury gets to focus on the condition of the subject product itself not have its attention diverted away to other vehicles. So if this kind of evidence is allowed in, it is starting to undermine strict liability in California. Uh, I won't say eviscerate it because it says in this case that it's, you know, there, there's a balancing test and it's not necessarily going to come in in every case. If it said it was, I'd say they eviscerated the Barker Court uh, ruling. But it's definitely a, you know, a step in the wrong direction, you know, and every journey to a forbidden end begins with the first step, I think our Supreme Court said a long time ago, and, and this is one of them with regard to strict products liability in California. As you, you describe it, the, the focus in a strict liability case is just on the, the subject here, vehicle, you know, the implement that caused some harm. The question just focuses on that one without reference to, you know, other ones. But it is natural, you would say, if you're a fact finder to think, Maybe one of the first questions you wonder is, well, how? Do, what does everyone else do? What are the other products like this out there like? You know, that, it's a natural question. So why is it so improper in, in these cases? Well, I mean, that's like, it, it probably is a natural question, but the reason, it, you know, it's improper, it's like that's why we have the evidence code in, in all kinds of situations. You know, you can't put in improper character evidence. You know, let's say somebody, you know, had, five speeding tickets in high school and now they're 80 years old and they want to and, and they got another speeding ticket and they're disputing it and the defense wants to come in and say yeah but you got five of them back in high school because you're a speeder i mean you know the evidence code is designed in such a way to allow in certain evidence that's relevant and exclude certain evidence that is if only slightly probative but is more prejudicial they exclude it so i agree with you that it may be a common question for a jury, but the reason it doesn't come in is because it's not a negligence case. It's a strict liability case, and that's the current law. The way we've been speaking about the issue so far is a bit sort of binary, whether this you know sort of evidence is kept out or brought in, but um, described by the Court of Appeal as something sort of a, called a, the middle ground approach, where this sort of custom evidence could come in in certain instances for certain purposes, like I think for one piece of that Barker test to figure out whether there are better feasible alternative designs. So not generally whether everyone else is doing it, but just if there is a possible feasible alternative. You sort of don't think that middle ground is a real viable way forward, right? No, it's, you know, again, in in my mind, and, you know, and I respect the courts that have ruled on this. I think they're good judges and justices, but it's just, to me, having spent so many years on this and focusing on it, it's just not an intellectually honest approach. I mean, the risk of a design, the risks are whatever the risks are. What somebody else is doing, even if they're doing the same thing or something different, has nothing to do with the risk. It just means somebody's doing it differently. And when it comes to an alternative feasible design, the issue is, is is there an alternative feasible design that was economically feasible at the time of the manufacture of your vehicle? And so whether or not another car had it, sometimes in cases, uh, a plaintiff may want to do that, but it's going to be risky because you're going to open the door to this type of evidence coming in. But if you had a, you know, I can see if you had, I think ESC became mandatory, I want to say in 2012, could have been 2016, I forget off the top of my head, 
let's just say hypothetically it was 2012. Mm -hmm. So in 2011, if everybody had electronic stability control, except Toyota on this one car, I can see the situation you alluded to earlier. You may want to say, hey, everybody else has it but you. But, but more importantly, you might want to say, my alternative feasible design is not something my expert invented in his garage. It is actually on the road in real-world vehicles, and here's an example of it. But that would be a plaintiff's choice on how they want to proceed to meet their burden. You do not need to allow in other manufacturers' designs to meet the alternative feasible design standard. The issue is, can an engineer say, you know, back in, I think this was the 2005 vehicle, all you need an expert to say is, in 2005, do you have an alternative feasible design that you can, you know, you could have designed and put in this vehicle? And they say yes. Okay, I'm starting to wrap up. You, you say you'd argue cases like this in, in other jurisdictions as well. It seems that both sides here present some evidence that other jurisdictions do things the way they suggest. You know, how strong is that evidence on your side of the argument? Uh, you mean other states following the Kim opinion more than Barker? Is that what the question is? Uh, just no, other states following the, the Barker approach. You know, I don't have it. Uh, committed to memory to nope, know, no you know, statistically how many, but I can tell you, I believe a majority of the states, uh, and again, whether it's 50% of them or 80%, I just don't know, but my, my recollection is a majority of the states do follow the restatement of torts as opposed to Barker. So a majority of the states would follow this rule. I can tell you there are a lot of states, though, that do cite to Barker and, you know, especially with regard to the consumer expectation prong of how to prove an auto defect case. So a lot of states do point to the Barker case, but I would think a majority do follow the restatement of torts. Then maybe this last one, how, what is your sense of the, the court's feelings on this case, how, how it might approach the, its ruling and what, what you might think uh, might come down from the, the high court? Man, if I'm being brutally honest with you, I don't have any idea. I didn't go up for the oral argument to get a feel for it, although I've argued at the Supreme Court and a lot of appellate levels and thought I won and lost and thought I lost and won. So I don't know if it would have helped me that much, which is kind of why I didn't go up. And I haven't, you know, to be quite frank, done the research on, on the current makeup of the court to see how they might lean on this issue. So, you know, if I'm going to speculate on the tea leaves, I've had some um, opinions that, you know, were sort of plaintiff or consumer friendly is probably a better way to phrase it in the auto defect arena. And uh, those cases, then uh, the defense has petitioned the Supreme Court. A lot of amicus briefs are in the Supreme Court rejected it to let the lower court, my opinion, stand. One of them is Ravine versus Johnson Controls back in 2012 verdict, I think a 2014 opinion. So if I want to kind of just use that experience, the fact that the Supreme Court decided to hear this case, I would lean towards they want to undo it because it's not in compliance with the majority of the California case law. So I just reversed what I told you a minute ago. That's going to be my guess. <laughs> okay. Sure. Well, we'll find out soon enough. Uh, we can leave it there uh, for now. Brian Chase, senior partner with Biznar Chase. Uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Fred Heestand is the general counsel of the Civil Justice Association of California and a solo practitioner in Sacramento. He believes the California High Court should affirm the appellate court's ruling allowing the use of industry custom evidence in design defect cases, at least for certain purposes. He joins us now, Mr. Heestand. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, you filed an amicus brief on behalf of that organization, the Civil Justice Association of California, and also the California Chamber of Commerce, and this case argued before the California Supreme Court last week, um, Kim vs. Toyota. And it's uh, obviously one dealing with the question as to whether evidence of industry custom is properly introduced in strict liability suits, uh, such as the one here. Maybe starting out, one theme that rings through your brief is the idea that there's there shouldn't be uh, and this idea certainly is, appears in the briefs on both sides as to how bright of a line there is between negligence suits and strict liability suits. You say there's not a terribly bright line between them, at least when you're talking about the sort of factors you're considering and thus the, the evidence that you ought to consider. That um, Those sorts of things tend to bleed over into both sorts of suits, no matter how what, what kind of line has been drawn by the courts, right? Yes. Well, uh, the, this opinion, as it arose from the appellate court, pointed out that there were two uh, schools of thought about industry custom and practice in 
product liability cases. Uh, one was that uh, such evidence should never be admissible because it uh, rang of, of negligence and strict product liability was sufficiently different from negligence that you shouldn't let in uh, evidence of industry custom and practice. And the other uh, line of cases was that, of course, industry custom and practice was, uh, if not always relevant, um, was often and should be admissible to um, give the jury or the fact finder uh, some standard as to whether the product was defective. We thought the appellate opinion, uh, which took a middle ground, uh, was uh, eminently reasonable. And that middle ground was that uh, it all would depend upon the uh, purpose and nature, the purpose of which the evidence was being offered of industry, custom, and practice, and the uh, nature of that evidence. And that, that made the most sense. And in fact, if you look at the, the opinions, intermediate appellate court opinions and California Supreme Court opinions, uh, they had at various times allowed in evidence of industry custom and practice depending upon the uh, purpose for which it was being offered and uh, the nature of that evidence. So, um, and we assume that the court took review of this case, the Supreme Court, uh, because they wanted to reconcile uh, that conflict between the all-or-nothing approach that the two uh, lines of, of cases or two schools of thought about this whole issue had revolved over many years. And uh, my client, the Civil Justice Association of California, is largely made up of businesses, uh, professional associations, and financial institutions uh, who want to make the civil liability system and rules for determining who pays how much to whom when the fault of, of some is uh, occasions injury to others um, more fair and predictable and certain and that this was just the type of case that uh, implicated our primary purpose so that's why we filed a friend of the court brief in, in Kim versus Toyota. Uh, if you could unpack that just a, a little bit further. So, I, you know, obviously the, the two most obvious alternatives in setting up this case describing the doctrine at play is either you exclude uh, fully industry custom evidence with the bright line rule or alternatively custom rule is perfectly fine to introduce in, in products liability, design defect, strict liability cases. But as you say, you advocate for a bit of a middle ground like the one taken here uh, and one that depends on the, the purpose for which evidence is introduced, uh, its, its use. I guess, what are some of the more proper purposes? And alternatively, you know, when is it is it not appropriate to reference industry custom in these kind of suits? Well, the the uh, specific test uh, that um, is at issue in this case is is known as the risk benefit test, mm -hmm. and to determine if a product is defective. In this case, the plaintiff was arguing that uh, Toyota's failure to include in its 2005 Tundra pickup truck an electronic stabilization control um, was a made the product that Tundra uh, defective and the risk benefit test is uh, that you can show defect in a product if you can show that the product failed to perform as safely as an ordinary consumer would expect when used in an intended or reasonably foreseeable manner, or two, as an alternative, if in light of relevant factors, the benefit of the challenge design, benefits of the challenge design do not outweigh the risk of danger inherent in such design. Now, the key there is outweigh, in, in that second part of the test, out, outweigh uh, it necessarily implies a balancing. So you uh, balance various factors that have to do uh, with the, the, the benefit and the risk. And uh, once you get into balancing, you get into very much what is involved in, in uh, negligence. So products liability, uh, even though it's considered strict and, and all that you need, usually need to show is that the product caused the injury in some way. It was a, a contributing factor to the injury. Um, this introduction of the risk-benefit test uh, introduced a, a kind of balancing or 
weighing or a negligence type uh, test into determining the defectiveness of a product. And that's, that's what we argued was, was all involved. It was involved here and has been involved in, in strict liability for some time. And the, the, the reason that, that plaintiffs obviously don't like that is they, they feel, for the most part, that strict products liability is a harsher uh, standard uh, for defendants to comply with and any kind of balancing. And uh, so they say that products liability focuses on the product and not the conduct of the manufacturer. But the conduct of the manufacturer is obviously uh, very relevant to the making of the product. And uh, you, you, they're like a chicken and egg. You, you really can't get away from them. As the uh, California Supreme Court, in a number of its decisions, has, has uh, explicitly recognized. One, uh, Daly versus General Motors, decided that if you've got more than one defendant involved in a lawsuit for a product that's alleged to be defective, that you apply comparative negligence to determining each uh, must take to pay for the the injury to the plaintiff. So they brought in comparative negligence into strict products liability right there. But anyway, uh, the uh, the appellate opinion discussed the the uh, relevant factors to consider in balance when applying the risk uh, benefit test, and th- these are standards that have have been announced in a number of cases preceding that one. They include the likelihood that the danger would, that the particular danger would occur from use of the product, the feasibility of a safer alternative design, the financial cost of an improved design, and the adverse consequences of the consumer resulting from an alternative design. So in these cases, juries have to consider the manufacturer's evidence of competing design considerations. And they have to consider the issue of design defect and the fact it cannot be resolved fairly by a standardless reference to the expectations of an ordinary consumer. So, um, and in fact, the Barker versus Lull case and other commentaries about Barker, which is the case that the plaintiffs primarily relied upon in, in their appellate argument and their argument to the Cal Supreme Court, bears a remarkable similarity to the risk-benefit test uh, for negligence expressed by Judge Learned Hand in this famous uh, Carroll Towing Company case in the uh, 1947 case before the second circuit, which, uh, you know, confirms that the balancing is very much like negligence when you get down to considering what is a defective product under the risk-benefit test. I was going to say, and as you point out in, in your brief, those factors weighing the likelihood and, and magnitude of harm against kind of the cost of avoiding that harm really does sound pretty similar to the, the hand formula. Yeah, that, that said, um, you know, what remains of the distinction between the two? As, as you wrote, California was a pioneer in, in developing the strict liability doctrine to, um, you know, among other things, protect consumers and, and, and put put the burden on manufacturers, the, the parties that tend to have more control over whether products cause harm. Um, and so, you know, if the two types of suits tend to bleed together, what what keeps them distinct still such that there remains two doctrines? Well, what keeps them distinct? You know, it's still, strict liability still favors a plaintiff over negligence because the, the there's burden shifting that goes on here. Uh, the the defendant has the burden of proving in a strict product liability that their their product is not defective by uh, by, by use by resort to this risk benefit test. Whereas in in a uh, negligence action, the plaintiff has the burden of going forward to show that the defendant's conduct was negligent. That is, that it breached a standard of care. Um, so the burden shifting, I think, is, is the primary thing here, and that may turn out, uh, depending upon, again, the, the nature of the evidence uh, and the purpose for which it's being introduced, 
to, to not be of that much uh, of, a, of a burden for a defendant in, in a case. The irony in this case is that uh, it was the plaintiff who introduced and then made, uh, uh, for, made first a motion to exclude all evidence of what it called industry custom. And incidentally, this industry custom is a description that is applied to, to the evidence. It's not necessarily the evidence itself. Here the question was the evidence, there was evidence that, it, that the no other um, uh, pickup truck had electronic uh, stabilization control on it in 2005. And the plaintiff here tried to um, introduce that evidence, uh, well, they first tried to exclude all evidence with, a, with an in limity emotion when, when that failed because the trial court said that it was overly broad and the appellate court agreed the, the, the exclusion of all evidence. Then, then the plaintiff introduced it to try to show this was just a marketability uh, factor by Toyota, that they just didn't do it because their competitors didn't do it. And therefore, that had nothing to do with the, the uh, defect in the product. It just had to do with the fact that uh, they were trying to avoid an additional cost because they didn't have to compete with anyone else that was introducing it on their, their vehicle. And they, so they, they initially introduced it. And, um, and then the, the, the various witnesses, the expert witnesses that were called, uh, then commented on the relevance of this factor and what, what it went to. And the court, the appellate court, went through with, with some detail saying what kinds of evidence would and would not be uh, admissible, in its opinion, uh, based on its uh, purpose and its nature. And, and says that uh, rejecting uh, one of Toyota's arguments that evidence that competing trucks <coughs> did not offer the electronic stabilization control um, and, and that that demonstrated that making it standard would have put uh, Toyota and its tundras at a competitive disadvantage, making it less marketable. Uh, the, the court said that it, it couldn't come in on that basis. You, you couldn't let the evidence come in on that kind of an argument because uh, what that factor meant was uh, in putting it at a competitive uh, disadvantage is this an adverse consequence to the manufacturer, not to the consumer of the product. Um, so they said it couldn't come in for that reason. Well, as you know, um, evidence comes in all the time for one purpose and not for another. And the court said, focus on that. Now, whether a jury can uh, distinguish depends upon the instructions that a, that a court would give to the jury. Now, you cannot consider the fact that no competitor had this on their vehicle um, as uh, uh, evidence of a defect. If the sole reason for which that evidence has been introduced is that it was uh, it would put the manufacturer at a competitive disadvantage if they added something that no other competitor did. But it might be relevant for another purpose, the, the court pointed out, which uh, that if uh, an alternative manufacturer tried to produce a safer design but it malfunctioned or, or only functioned at an unsustainable cost, it would be relevant for the feasibility factor of the risk-benefit test. And so they could be instructed on that. Now, during the argument before the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Liu raised the question of, isn't this going to be so complex to a jury that they just basically throw up their hands and say, oh, well, uh, let's just find because it, uh, it did get in and no one else did it, uh, therefore uh, we're, we're going to rule for the defendant. And the answer to that is, uh, hey, that's why we have uh, limiting instructions about the nature and purpose of evidence and what you can consider, consider it for as a fact finder. Here, the, the plaintiffs, uh, interestingly, complained and wanted a limiting instruction, which the trial court told them they could offer, but not the broad, but the broad one that they had offered was rejected. 
but they never put forward any uh, limiting instruction that was more narrow uh, for for the trial court to um, to give to the jury. So that was their choice or their mistake, whichever. But given the, uh, I guess the experience and the acumen of the the plaintiff's uh, attorney in in this, Ian Herzog, who also argued before the the Supreme Court, I I don't think it was a mistake. I think they made a calculated uh, decision not to offer the limiting instruction. Who knows what effect that had or would have had had it been offered and whether the court had granted it or not. As you say, it might be a bit complex to assume fact finders could wade through exactly one purpose as opposed to another, but certainly courts ask a lot of jurors all the time. But with, um, as you're describing the idea or the, the sort of evidence describing that industry competitors aren't doing a particular thing, aren't introducing a particular safety mechanism in in their cars, and so here, so it, one argument could go, uh, Ford shouldn't be faulted for also not doing that, not introducing that safety feature that I believe evidence showed, you know, would have prevented the uh, the accident that caused the injury here. Doesn't that sort of illustrate the, the most salient argument on, on the other side that industry, using industry custom can create a, a situation where just, you know, some sort of suboptimal, less safe than it could be type standard prevails because uh, parties in the industry just continue to adhere to it and, and don't feel the need to raise safety standards knowing that they'll be judged against the existing you know custom well that's theoretically uh, possible but you, you would, if, if all the manufacturers of a product whatever it might be you know uh, colluded uh, or agreed uh, somehow not to to uh, uh, make changes um, that would not only be a violation of the antitrust laws, but in, in the real world, highly unlikely because, you know, when, especially when you come to the product of cars, safety features are, are very much on the minds of many consumers. In fact, if you look at the ads on TV, the Subaru is always promoting itself as having the, the safest vehicle. Um, and that's a pitch, obviously, to consumers who do think about their safety and driving in cars. And since there's a large number of fatalities from car accidents, uh, think that you know any manufacturer of an automobile that could pr- produce a safety feature that others didn't have would do so in order to get th- themselves a competitive advantage. Uh, so I just don't. I don't think it's realistic that. Uh, um, you would have uh, everybody not doing something that produces competing products in, in order to uh, uh, keep them unsafe and, and keep their profits high. I, I think that the, the days of, of, of the Ford Pinto case, for instance, the exploding gas tank, um, are, are, are long gone. <laughs> that, uh, they, they realize that uh, uh, liability for, for making those kinds of deliberate economic decisions not to make your, your uh, car safer um, are going to come back to uh, bite you in the butt with a, a, big, a big bite. So um, I, I just don't think they do it much anymore. I don't, I don't know if they do it at all. Yeah, one interesting point I thought that you raised was that you know, here Toyota, the defendant, is wants industry custom evidence to come in, but but you stress that there certainly, or it, it should be the sort of thing that cuts both ways. You know, here well, are it does folks, cut both yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah the the again the, the custom and practice is a shorthand category that describes various kinds of evidence that might be introduced depending on its its uh, uh, purpose and, and the nature of that evidence. But it, it can cut both ways, and uh, the, the appellate opinion uh, points that out. It says that it's, it's not a one-way street. That, uh, and, and in fact, that's why the, the plaintiff in this case uh, tried to say uh, it's uh, all the only reason that uh, Toyota um, didn't put the ESC on its uh, pickup trucks was a marketability reason. Uh, that none of the other uh, its competitors did it, 
and uh, they, they they argued that to to the jury after it got in. <laughs> so, um, but it didn't help them in this case. I mean, the jury didn't, for whatever reason, feel that uh, that was a persuasive argument. One other thing on uh, your side of this is is the argument that the majority of other jurisdictions do follow this sort of approach. Is it like this, a case-by-case sort of thing that industry custom could come in? Uh, well, it, it has to be a case-by-case case determination, but the uh, there are a majority of jurisdictions that uh, have stated that, uh, you know, custom and practice, industry custom and practice evidence is... Uh, often or ordinarily or usually or commonly admitted um, on uh, when when uh, the, the risk utility test for whether a product is defective is is uh, at issue and uh, it almost always is at issue so they they just they more readily accept that california uh, has let it in in a number of intermediate appellate cases and but but some some opinions, as the appellate court in this case pointed out, seem uh, have language that suggests it should almost never come in. And uh, I think the appellate court, uh, by taking the middle ground, was trying to point out that hey, you know, it's not an either or. It depends up again on the nature of the evidence and the purpose for which it's being introduced. And the Supreme Court, I assume. Uh, granted review in the case to try to uh, clarify those situations in which it it can come in and those in which it cannot. Um, And uh, I don't know what more they can say on this that the uh, uh, appellate court didn't say when it was giving examples, um, but uh, we'll see. The court did ask uh, of, of counsel what the difference between marketability and uh, and and other purposes how you would uh, define and explain that and I thought the the appellate court did a pretty good job of of doing that but uh, you know maybe the court wants more and it's going to add more uh, whatever they decide on this did did you have a sense from the oral arguments as to you know which way members or how, how the court in general you know, felt about this particular question and then the dis- discordant doctrine it'll be considering? Well, you know, it's, it's always difficult to predict what uh, the court may decide based on its questioning because, you know, the justices play devil's advocate and ask uh, tough questions for both sides. But trying to read the tea leaves, while difficult, uh, I think they wouldn't have taken the case um, uh, unless they want to clarify the apparent conflicts that exist between uh, intermediate appellate courts on this now. Uh, so uh, I have a feeling they're going to, uh, I don't know whether they particularly uh, uh, will affirm or reverse in this, but I think they are going to say that you can, under certain circumstances, uh, get in evidence that that may be considered a custom and practice of the industry when you're trying to use the, and interpret the application of the risk-benefit test to uh, whether a product is defective. Maybe just one one last one. Were they to come to a, a different conclusion than the one you counsel against, that there is a, a bright-line rule against the introduction of this sort of evidence for whatever purpose? You know, kind of, Could you illustrate that in terms of this particular case? What would be left to a defendant like Toyota in terms of you know putting on a defense to describe why a, its choice to not introduce a safety feature was you know not a design defect if they can't reference you know the actions of other similar type companies so you know is it just expert opinions at at that point how how do they put that case on well yes well custom and and practice would be helpful to them in this case if they if they didn't have it i think they could still make case as to why they didn't include it and why it would not have been, it would not have, well, it may have made the, their product safer to install it. It would not have made it unsafe to not install it. And they, they, uh, they could have explained the other safety features of their vehicle. And in fact, they might have been able to explain that given the speed at which the, uh, the plaintiff was driving the, the vehicle, 
down the curvy road at the time would would have made the accident uh, inevitable with or without the electronic uh, stabilization control feature so you know that that would have been the battle of the experts the uh, accident reconstruction people uh, you know would have probably gotten up there to say that no the the uh, this feature would not have prevented the accident and uh, therefore was was not a an aspect that made the this product defective and caused the accident well we'll certainly find out here soon enough just which way the court wants to come down on this question one of interest to products liability attorneys towards attorneys folks generally um fred he stand a uh, general counsel from the civil justice association of california thanks so much for being on the podcast i really appreciate it all right. Thank you, Brian. And with that, our program for June 4th, 2018 is complete. One more time thanks to both of my guests, Mr. Brian Chase and Mr. Fred Heestand. Thanks to my production team here, principally Nick Perez, and also thanks to our editor, David Houston. And of course, thanks to you as well for tuning in, and it is tremendously appreciated. Don't forget the various ways you can listen to the program now, including via the podcast app on iOS devices and in iTunes, as well as on our site at dailyjournal.com. And don't forget, you are entitled to California CLE credit for having tuned into the program. You can find a link to it on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.